Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Gars Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I am the director of the museum. I am pleased to say I am still receiving emails about the interview with the Garrison Sart Major, giving background details about the treating of the colour. You clearly enjoyed hearing his unique input, and thank you to those who wrote in. This week, we will be looking at the biography of one of the most famous Sant Majors in the annals of the Foot Guards Regiments, Regimental Sant Major Tibby Britton, Coldstream Guards. He served for nearly 40 years and was credited as having the loudest voice in the British Army. Before we delve into the book, I'd like to share with you an email that came in about a man who served at Waterloo. The email came from a Mr John Richardson of Rotherhill in Sussex and it goes as follows. It was Waterloo Day yesterday and I wrote a piece for the family about our direct ancestor, Daniel Hatterell, a Sussex peasant who fought at Catra and at Waterloo. I don't know whether you are interested, but here's the piece below. I think that the last paragraph contains something quite astonishing. Daniel Hatterell who fought at the Battle of Waterloo, lies buried in the churchyard of St Andrew and St Mary's Fletching in Sussex. In 1813, he enlisted at Bow in London, in the 3rd Regiment of Foot Guards, now the Scots Guards. His army records tell us that Daniel was born in Lewis in 1795. This is largely a Scottish regiment, and the Scots obviously thought that he meant the Isle of Lewis in Scotland. But he was purebred Sussex, born in the ancient county town of Lewis. In 1815, his regiment fought with the Duke of Wellington's army, and Daniel served in the 2nd Battalion, 3rd Regiment of Fusilier Foot Guards, Lieutenant Colonel Hepburn being his commanding officer in the 2nd Company of that battalion, under Lieutenant Colonel Charles Dashwood. On the 16th of June, he fought at the Battle of Catra and two days later, on the 18th of June, he was involved in the bitterly fierce fighting around the Chateau de Hougoumont, the crucial position securing Wellington's right flank. Daniel survived the battle, being awarded a Waterloo medal, the whereabouts of which are unknown, and a pension supplement of two shillings. Daniel prided himself on being the first soldier that presented arms to King George IV, but in 1826 he was discharged from the army at the age of 31 on the grounds that he was too short. He married Sophia Muddle, born 1801 in Icefield, and they had a large family of five daughters and three sons. In the 1841 census, he is recorded as having lived in Gilbert Cottages, Piltdown. He was a pensioner of the 3rd Regiment Foot Guards, and at that time was working as a farm labourer. The 1851 census showed that he had moved out to Coombers in Fletching Parish, and is listed as a Chelsea out-pensioner. In his later years, he suffered such appalling poverty that a previous vicar of the church, W.F. Attenborough, vicar of Fletching, appealed for charity, saying that Daniel was now confined to his bed and except for a pension of 5p a day, is indebted to the cold assistance of the parish or friends for that extra sustenance, which illness always requires. Thus, the Reverend Attenborough nobly took it upon himself to raise charity from local parishioners to keep Daniel from the workhouse. Daniel died in Fletching, on the 16th of December 1874 at the age of 81 and again the same vicar took it upon himself to raise funds for a memorial stone in the churchyard. In 2007, on the 10th of June, Daniel's original 
badly decayed memorial stone was moved into the safety of Fletching Church. A service of blessing was conducted by Reverend Canon Derek Whitehead on the 15th of June 2007, when some 30 people attended, including five of Daniel's descendants. Also present was Captain Bob Clarkson, the regimental historian of the Scots Guards. A new memorial stone was commissioned and is placed on his grave. It gives details from the original memorial and records the details of the move to the church of that memorial. Two of Daniel's young descendants, my own sons, are both in the army and recently served in Afghanistan. Daniel himself would have been astonished to learn that two weeks ago, a great-great-great-grandson of his was invited to our nation's Waterloo commemoration service in London, and at the reception afterwards found himself talking to a lady about Daniel's part in the battle. When he asked her if her ancestors had been at Waterloo, she said, Oh yes, I am the great-great-great-great-granddaughter of Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, Daniel, if only you could have been there to see that. Once again, thank you to Mr Richardson for sending in that story. And so we turn to this week's book, which is simply called The Sergeant Major. And it is written by James Lisa. It covers the life of one, or some would say, the most famous regimental sergeant majors in the British Army, Warrant Officer Norman Britton, better known by his nickname, Tibby Britton. The foreword of the book is written by Lieutenant General Sir Oliver Lees, KCB, CBE, DSO, and is worth hearing as it gives a good insight into the man. It is always a pleasure to do something for a friend, and it is a privilege to do something for a man who has won an outstanding place in the nation's esteem. I was therefore very glad when RSM Britain asked me at the farewell ball given for him by the sergeants of the 1st Battalion Coldstream Guards to write a foreword for his book. My association with the Sant Major were mainly in the 1st Battalion, first as my company Sant Major in No. 3 Company at Aldershot, and again when he was my regimental Sant Major whilst I commanded the battalion at Wellington Barracks. During that time I gained a very real admiration and affection for him, a stern disciplinarian and a magnificent drill instructor, always with a terrific word of command, which through the medium of radio and television has become world famous. In a battalion, he was an outstanding and remarkable personality, for I think he was a personal friend to almost every man. They knew that he would run them in relentlessly if the least thing were wrong, but they knew too that he would stand up for them if they were in the right, and he was scrupulously fair in his dealings with everyone. I feel that it is this great sense of fairness, understanding and sympathy for others, coupled with his unique sense of humour, that has endeared him to those many thousands of officer cadets who passed through his hands at Mons Barracks. They remembered the very high standards he urged them to live up to in service, and I feel sure that for many years to come the best traditions of the British Army will be safe in the hands of those young officers who were taught at Mons Barracks by RSM Britain, that nothing is good enough except the best. I cannot finish this foreword without a word about Mrs Britain the gallant and understanding woman who has shared so bravely and so gaily all the vicissitudes of the Sant Major's life. In this book it is described how Miss Mill Charlton, as she was then, when discussing with him the dire financial straits of a young Lance Sergeant married off the strength, thought it over carefully and then suddenly declared, let's do it anyway. And together they have done so, happily and successfully.
And today, many thousands of us, from general to private, say thank you to RSM and Mrs Britton for a job well and truly done. He might on many occasions have taken a commission, and lesser women than Mrs Britton might have encouraged him to do so. But the British Army is a richer place for the invaluable work done by RSM Britton as a Sergeant Major, a career in which he has earned for himself an undying place in the foremost ranks of that immortal band of warriors, the Regimental Sergeant Majors of the British Army. Ronald Britton was born in 1899 in Liverpool. When he was at school, he was asked what he wanted to be when he grew up, to which he unhesitatingly replied, I will be Sergeant Major of the British Grenadiers. His ambition was dictated by his liking for the regimental march of that regiment. However, he was destined to become a Sergeant Major in the Guards, but in the Coldstream Guards, not the Grenadiers. It is also surprising to find that Britain, who was to become known the world over as a fiercely regimental Coldstreamer, did not start out in that regiment. In the Great War, Ron Britton tried to enlist by marching into a recruiting office. He was tall for his age, but quite unworldly, and when asked for his age, he told the truth and said 16. He was told that he was too young, but the kindly recruiting sergeant took his details and said he would be in contact nearer his 18th birthday. They gave him an armband to wear to show he was destined for the army and not shirking his national duty. So it was that on the 24th of September 1917, he was told to report to the King's Liverpool Regiment, Seaforth Barracks, in Liverpool, to begin what was to be a 40-year career in the army. The thousands of recruits who were later to be favoured with the rough and fiery edge of Sergeant Major Britain's tongue, which earned for him the undisputed title of the man with the loudest voice in the army, would have found much to comfort them at the sight of Private Britain as a recruit in Seaforth Barracks in 1917. With several dozen others, he reported to the barracks, went through the celebrated medical inspection, which in that First World War, as in the Second, dealt largely with the ability of the recruit to stand on his toes, cough and say 99, was then marched off rapidly to be issued with kit. He then experienced the same brusque system for issuing kit, which has probably befallen recruits since Roman times. Get your clothes off now and put a kick into it there, bellowed the corporal, who had double-marched them to the quartermaster's stores, enjoying putting the fear of the unknown into them, as it had so often been put into him. They began to peel off their jackets and then their shirts, shivering in the breeze from the river, wishing they were anywhere but in barracks and about to wear khaki. Here you are, some boots for you, shouted a storeman, and flung a pair of boots tight together with their laces at Britain's head. These are both left feet, he protested, holding them up. Don't shout about it, knobhead, or they'll all want them, retorted the storeman, but he took them back grudgingly. Try these for size, he said, handing over a proper pair. Britain looked at them. They were size ten, and he took twelves. They're too small, he said, but without conviction. Stop talking, put them on, roared the storeman. I know your type, troublemakers, I've been watching you. You think because you're big you can get away with it. Well, you can't. This is the army, not the bleeding boys' brigade. It was the same when it came to the issuing of the caps, which in those days were peaked with wire inside, what they called cap service stiff. Britain's cap was too large for him. It hung about his ears like a fallen halo. You put some paper in the lining, bring it down to your size. It'll fit you perfect then, mate. Your red will grow out of it eventually anyway, he said obscurely. I did not know whether he meant that I'd get a swelled head or that I'd have it blown off, said Britain, but at the time he did not wish to pursue the inquiry any further. 
Because of his size, six feet four inches and broad with it, he tended to stick out from the crowd and was noticed by the officers and senior non-commissioned officers. This led to him being singled out to get the squad to do things. In quite a short period of time, Britain was promoted to Lance Corporal, acting and unpaid. Shortly thereafter, he was selected to attend a junior NCO's course in Oswestry and was made a substantive full corporal and sent to Priest Heath Training School. Britain was involved with the training of soldiers for the front, but he never deployed overseas at all. In February 1918, all NCOs were called back to their units and the permanent staff at the school were given an unexpected week's leave. Rumour had it that it was prior to the big offensive in March. But nothing materialised and training went on as usual until November the 11th and the armistice being declared. When training ceased at the school, Britain was posted to the 3rd Battalion, South Wales Borderers. He was sorry to leave Priest Heath, and on his last day he was sent for by the RSM, a man called Muzzle Metherill, who had a conversation with Britain as follows. What are you going to do now when you get demobbed, he asked Britain, when an orderly had set before them two huge mugs of tea. I don't know, replied Britain slowly. I've been wondering. I was in a butcher's shop before I joined up, and although the job was all right, I'm not sure I want to go back to doing it again. Metherill leaned across the table towards him. Why not soldier on? he asked with an air of one making a momentous suggestion after great thought. What, in the borderers? Metherill shook his head, impatient with such slowness. No, of course not, in the guards. He leaned back smiling. He'd shot his bolt. Now he waited to see it landing. Funny you should mention that, sir. But when I was a little boy, all oh, about so high, I used to think I'd like to join the Grenadiers. Must have been their march that attracted me, I think. The British Grenadiers. I was referring to the Coldstream Guards, of course, said RSM Metherill frostily. My regiment. That's the regiment of the guards I meant. I'll think it over, sir. It certainly seems a good idea. It's the best idea you'll ever have in this camp, my boy, Metherill assured him with conviction. The very best. Regiments are like brands of beer. There are no bad ones, but some are better than others. The Coldstream, of course, are the best of all. Even our motto shows it. Nulli secundus. Second to none. And what I'm saying isn't just my own opinion. It's history. It's fact. I'll tell you why. In 1650, at the time of the Civil Wars, Cromwell and all that, an officer called Monk, George Monk, on the parliamentarian side, he was picked out by Oliver Cromwell to form a new regiment. They had their headquarters in a little town called Coldstream on the Tweed. It was a wretched place, cold and miserable, but the lads didn't seem to mind the discomfort, so they were nicknamed Coldstreamers. Well, Cromwell died in 1658, and Monk was a bit dissatisfied with things, so he marched to London. It took him a month to get there, and when he arrived, he forced the old Parliament to dissolve, and declared a new and freely elected Parliament. The fact that he had an army behind him helped, of course. He wasn't doing it all on his own. He had the power to make the politicians move, and they knew it. At the bare mention of politicians, Metherill spat contemptuously. The first thing the new Parliament did, on Monk's suggestion, of course, was to invite King Charles II back to the throne. He came, and gladly. And Monk was declared Captain General of the Land Forces and created Duke of Albemarle. Now, 
Charles wanted to keep his throne this time, and he knew that a strong army of guards behind him could do more for him than any amount of creeping courtiers or politicians, so he ordered that a regiment of twelve companies should be raised. This was chiefly composed of men who had been faithful to him even in exile, and out of gratitude he gave them the precedence of the 1st or Grenadier Regiment of Foot Guards. Monk's regiment was never disbanded, and he was annoyed when he heard that it would not be first in precedence. Well, your majesty, if we can't be first, we'll certainly not be second. Our motto will be nulli secundus, second to none. And so it's been ever since, Aunt Britain. The RSM paused, a bit surprised at his own eloquence. Well, he continued a little awkwardly, you think it over, and if you do decide, I'm sure you'll not regret it. Britain was inclined to agree. Transferring into the Coldstream Guards meant that he would lose all his rank, and he would start again as a private, which was far from ideal, but it was a means to an end. So in early 1919, Britain was ordered to report to the Guards Depot at Caterham, also known as the Drill Factory. He toiled his way uphill from the station towards the camp. So steep is this climb, that the kindly Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals have erected a sign at its foot, urging all those with horses to slacken the leading reins, as it's all a horse can do to walk slowly up the hill. There is no similar society for the prevention of cruelty to guardsmen, and they had to hump their kit on their backs. The distance is about one and a half miles, with a big pack, small pack, kit bag, great coat, and all the other impedimenta of a soldier. It seemed a very long way. Britain toiled uphill, stopping every now and then to rest and to transfer his kit bag from one shoulder to the other. At last he came to an imposing set of gates with big buildings behind them. The depot, he thought thankfully, and then thought again. No soldiers were visible, only a man in a cloth cap standing a few feet inside the gates, hands in his pockets, staring at him as though he'd never seen a stranger. Britain cleared his throat. Where does this road go to, mate? he asked. He doesn't go anywhere. People who walk along it go to Caterham, the other man said gravely. What the hell? began Britain angrily. And then he saw a second man in a blue uniform of some kind coming out of the lodge. What is this place? he asked him sharply. The Lunatic Asylum, replied the newcomer. Well, where's the guard's depot then? Oh, that. About fifty yards further on. But I'd come inside here if I were you. You'll be far more comfortable and with that the man roared with laughter at his own wit. Britain did not accept the invitation, but walked on with what dignity he could until the next set of gates, opening onto a huge parade ground, ringed with barracks. A corporal was on duty at the gate. Britain approached him. Where do I report to, corporal? The corporal sprang to attention. Why are you reporting here, sergeant? I'm a re-enlisting man, transferring to the Colstream Guards. All right, sergeant, said the corporal. I'll send you to the receiving room. He turned round and roared, Penitentiary! A man came across from his post in quick time and halted. Take this sergeant to the receiving room, said the corporal. Britain thought, this is it now, I'm in. Follow me, please, sergeant, said the picket sentry, and they set off. The day was sunny. A few feathery clouds trailed across an April sky. On the right as they marched, were the old grey buildings of the officers' mess. On the left, a parade ground, with recruits wheeling about, squad on squad. The air was full of shouts of sergeants and corporals, with orders and counter-orders, commands and advice. Left, right, left, right, left, went Britain's feet behind the feet of the sentry. All tiredness was forgotten in the enjoyment of the life he had wanted for so long. 
One eye, half on the parade ground, the other trying to see where he was going. They cracked along the asphalt path at 140 paces to the minute, enjoying every one of them. There was something about the atmosphere of energy and zest inside the depot gates that was greatly lacking outside. Everyone was on the move. No one was slouching or loafing. The effect was that of a charge of electricity to the brain. Britain revelled in it. And he said later, remembering the first few moments, I felt as though someone had stuck a stick of dynamite where it hurts most and was urging me on. Britain was older than most of his fellow intake at the depot, but had to knuckle down and start over. In each room was a trained soldier who was responsible for getting the new intake to turn themselves and the room out in good order. Not yet a lance corporal, but with up to 20 years' service behind them, these men were fanatical in their demands and somewhat unorthodox in their methods. Britain's trained soldier was no different. The story goes, Every Saturday after inspection, the trained soldiers had the men of their rooms down on their hands and knees with old razor blades, scraping off the polish they had so laboriously applied only the week before, so that no dirt or dust should be left in the joints between the floorboards. Weekend passes were not easy to get in 1919. In the words of old soldiers, You work hard all week and twice as hard on Sundays. Each man was also responsible for cleaning the window nearest his bed, and this made a job for the weekend. Not just a wipe over with a wet rag or a chamois leather, but a proper army cleaning, using metal polish. The best thing for windows is bluebell, the trained soldier would explain seriously, and without a trace of irony would add, it brings them up like glass. Interestingly, the author pauses in the tale to talk about the importance of the museum in Caterham Camp. At Caterham nowadays, there is a guards museum, where are enshrined some notable relics of the regiments. There are some punishments recorded in an old regimental conduct book. On December 11th, 1790, Charles Phillips of M.G. Norton's company was sentenced and received 200 lashes for making away with a pair of shoes and a pair of stockings. Corporal Patterson, also of M.G. Norton's company, was sentenced in the next year to be reduced in the ranks for associating and drinking with private men in a public house when billeted up. Every guard's recruit is shown this museum. They see the ancient swords and weapons, the recruiting posters from the past wars, the captured trinkets and the coloured pictures of battles and men exhorting others to go on over them as they lay dying. Here, within the four walls, are the memories of hundreds of years, hundreds of battles lost, won and thrown away. Under the old tattered banners on the walls, men went out to die, and others came home to glory and honour. It is difficult not to feel a thrill of pride in the deeds of arms on so many foreign battlefields that are commemorated in this museum. No matter how sordid and shabby these wars may have been, and what political intrigues robbed victories of their glory or defeats of their sting, the men who died fighting were tough, good-hearted and loyal. This museum belongs to them and to their memory. And it's sound psychology to insist that recruits see these dim, lost glories of the past. I couldn't have put it better myself. So we have Britain going through his training as a raw recruit, having already been an instructor himself, though not in the guards. Then came his moment. When the army has nothing to do with men under its command, it either sends them on leave or drills them. As the men re-enlisting at Caterham had already been on leave, they were drilled, and drilled severely day after day after day. A drill sergeant of the guards, resplendent in red sash, 
with the small of his back drawn in, chest out, shoulders braced, so that from the side he looked like an animated question mark, took charge of them. He formed them up in fours, then stalked down the front rank, peering into every face closely, as though he had hoped to see someone he had known long ago. You, he said to Britain. Yes, you with a face, fall out. Britain did so, banging his feet on the asphalt. Right, said the drill sergeant. You get hold of these men, smart them up, make them look lively now. Britain did his best. He remembered what he'd been taught at Oswestry and at Priest Heath. He got the squad on the move in quick time, turned them about and about, and then to the left and then to the right. He halted them and checked their faults, and then he started over again. The drill sergeant was not displeased. Where did you learn your drill? he asked Britain. Under Sergeant Major Metherill. Oh, under an old coal streamer, eh? Yes, sir. What rank were you then? A sergeant in the South Wales Borderers. Right, he said, fall in. So Britain went back into the line again, but not for long. Within a few days, his name was up on the detail board for posting to the 1st Battalion Coldstream Guards on Wimbledon Common. And within a month of his arrival, he was appointed acting unpaid Lance Corporal. He was back in the rank of his first promotion. On Wimbledon Common, the guards lived in huts that had been built for the duration, but which were, in fact, to last for several years. It was a cold, windy place, even in early summer. Drill formed a great part of their daily routine, and for this they were thankful, for at least it kept them warm. They were, of course, just an annex of the Caterham Drill Factory, for wherever two or more guardsmen are gathered together, they will be drilled. The camp was fenced in with barbed wire, and there was a gravel parade ground. Tarmac roads led about the place, which was on a far more ambitious scale than any other camp in which Britain had previously served. In the Second World War, much was made in the infantry of medical opinion which believed that stamping feet on the parade ground did not improve the health of the stamper. It was held to damage his spine and his nerve centres, and all manner of other delicate organisms in his body. This theory did not gain much ground or many converts in the guards even then, and there were no subscribers to it at all in 1919. A man who held that stamping his feet on the parade ground was injurious to his health would have been described as idle and double-marched away into the guardroom. The order was indeed, you don't put your feet on the ground in the brigade, you drive it into the ground. You lift it up 12 inches, you drives it down 13. One day having finished drill, Britain saw his name again on the order board. Number 29022, Lance Corporal Britain R, Buckingham Palace Guard. He realised this was the dream he had dreamed so often as a small boy and it had come to life. Not quite as he had imagined it then in tunic and bearskin, but this was in the war and his first guard would have to be done in khaki. He went back to his hut and started right away for the task was long and the Blanco took several hours to dry. Hard work indeed, but Britain was truly in his element. By this stage, Britain was married, but his wife was having to live with her parents, which was far from ideal. He was then selected to go to Hythe Camp in Kent to do the small arms instructor's course. His sergeant major said, You've done well, Ron. We've got a vacancy on a small arms course at Hythe in Kent, and we've put you down for that. Now, here's a tip, unofficial, so keep it under your hat. If you do well on this, there's a good chance, more than a good chance in fact, that you'll be going to Sandhurst to the Royal Military College 
as sergeant instructor. So, watch his step. This was indeed good news, and was borne back swiftly to his wife in their furnished rooms. She was delighted, but there might even be married quarters at Sandhurst for them, although this seemed too much to expect. Britain did well on the course, and shortly thereafter he was indeed posted to Sandhurst. He was very concerned whether his voice would be strong enough to handle the constant drill, so much so that he saw an advert in a magazine for an elocutionist. We can free your inner self in speech, claimed the advert. Consult me now on all your problems. This seemed just the man Britain needed. So next morning, in civilian clothes, with bowler hat and a brigade tie, he took the train to London for the office of this expert. The elocutionist, a man in a white coat with heavy-rimmed spectacles, peered down his throat with the aid of lights and mirrors, had him pronounce the vowels, and then nodded wisely and gave his opinion. I'm sorry, Mr. Britton, he said frankly, but you are tongue-tied, a very unusual condition of the vocal organ indeed. You'll never be able to shout. In this diagnosis and prognostication, the elocutionist was less than accurate, for in the years between then and now, Britain has shouted more than most, and the strength of his voice is acknowledged in all the army. Britain excelled at Sandhurst, and soon got a reputation for exacting the very high standards from his gentlemen cadets, to superhuman levels. One day, he was eating an apple in the stores, when a tiny gentleman cadet came in to collect a new pull-through. Oh, staff, he explained in surprise and amazement. Are you... are you eating an apple? Yes, sir, replied Britain with dignity. Why shouldn't I? Why do you ask? Well, staff, replied the gentleman cadet, I'm so surprised to see you eating it. I've discovered you are human. You do all the things other people do. I think that'll do, sir. I think you'd better fall out now before you go too far, Britain said smartly, and the cadet did. Whilst at Sandhurst, he was chatting to a fellow company sergeant major in the Irish Guards, who said, You know, Ron, I'd lay off shouting too strongly. A great pal of mine, a sergeant major too, burst a blood vessel only the other week at Catterick through shouting too loudly. You just don't realise the strain all that shouting throws on your heart and your voice. It really is tremendous. Rubbish, said Britain, who did not believe a word of it. Next morning on parade, he found himself shouting against a strong wind. He had to roar twice as loudly to make himself heard, and even then his voice was blown away. Suddenly, his face puce, his veins standing out like pipes in his neck. A tremendous stabbing pain tore at his chest. He felt sick with its intensity, and was sweating when he marched off the parade ground, although the day was very cold. The pain stayed with him for nearly three weeks, increasing slightly whenever he shouted, and then remained as a hard, dull ache. Eventually it faded and left him, but always since that morning in Sandhurst, 27 years ago, whenever Britain used his tremendous voice, it was with the inner unspoken hope that the pain would not return. To say he expected the highest standards is not an exaggeration, even of himself. When Britain was on duty as Pickett's aunt, one of his tasks was to assemble the defaulters and mete out their fatigue tasks to them. He would arrive at the appointed parade ground with a drummer, really a bugler, who would sound the Pickett's and defaulters' call. If the falters did not arrive before the call ended, Britain would put them in the book for being late. This they had never known happen with any other sergeant, 
and it so alarmed them that most of them would be ready waiting there before Britain arrived. Those not present would leap out of ground floor windows or shin down drain pipes from the upper stories so as not to be late. In those days, sergeants were allowed to sleep out until 7.30 in the morning. One day, Britain came into barracks at 7.32. He nodded to the sergeant at the gate and said, Good morning. Good morning, replied the sergeant, civilly enough, and Britain went to his barrack room. Next thing, the sergeant of the guard was on a charge for failing to put Sergeant Britain on one for coming in two minutes late. Nor that was all. Sergeant Britain put himself in the book for being two minutes late too. This was in the tradition of disciplinary eccentricity, always highly regarded in the brigade. He rapidly became a legend. Despite his immense frame, he prided himself in being just as fit as his gentlemen cadets and regularly ran with them and shot with them, besting them at every discipline. His outstanding adherence to regimental correctness is typified in this story. Shortly after Britain's promotion in number three company, a story began to be told in the brigade that has never been denied by Britain. It concerns a drill he evolved for using the telephone so that proper respect and compliments could be paid by juniors to their seniors. When he was in the orderly room and the telephone rang, it was usual for a clerk to pick up the instrument and say, The orderly room? The adjutant or commanding officer at the other end of the line would say they wished to speak to the sergeant major, and the clerk, holding a hand over the mouthpiece, would translate this to Britain as, The adjutant wants you on the phone, sir. At once, Britain would spring to attention, regardless of what he had been doing. Orderly room! Orderly room! Shanda! Orderly room! Stand at ease! He would thunder. He would then pick up the receiver and say smartly, One moment, sir, I must get my hat. He would then put his hat on his head, pull down the peak and say, I am saluting you now, sir! Then, I am standing to attention, sir. Will you proceed? He would take down the message and then say, Thank you, sir. I am now saluting you. Will you discontinue the conversation? Then, as the officer rang up, perhaps miles away, he would turn round to the orderly room and say, Ole Rom, While they sprang to attention, he would replace the receiver on its rest and then stand the room at ease. In fact, so regimental had Britain become that it was believed he would actually change into football clothes, boots, shirts, socks and shorts, and then, thus attired, sit down at a table to make out his football balls, satisfied that he was correctly dressed for the part. If I'm not dressed like a man doing football balls, how can I do it right? he would ask. Steadily, Britain's reputation grew, as did the power of his remarkable voice, to the point that some guardsmen would remark, the sergeant major shouted in Camberley, and the guard braced up in Windsor. In January 1931, Britain was on King's Guard and succumbed to a bout of influenza, but because he wouldn't go sick, it developed into rheumatic fever, and he was hospitalised into Millbank Hospital for seven weeks. But Britain always had an eye for an opportunity, so while he was there, he asked the surgeons to remove his tonsils. Not because they were septic, but because he felt sure he'd be able to shout louder and longer without them. In 1934, he was appointed RSM at the Guards Depot in Caterham. He couldn't quite believe it. To be RSM of the Depot at 34 years of age was unheard of, and a real testament to his drive and skill. This is where some of his more remarkable sayings started. Wake up, you dozy man. I'll put you in the book. 
Keep their legs moving, Sarge, so their feet don't touch the ground. Stamp your feet. If Mahatma Gandhi came out on the parade in his bare feet, you wouldn't hurt him. There were incidents that I still remembered. On one of the daily form-ups, he bellowed, Garsman, blank, suck your guts in. Not a man moved. No one seemed to breathe. He repeated the order and still no one moved. For a third time he roared and down the long lines, a sergeant replied, Permission to speak, sir. Garsman Blank is not on parade. Britain unperturbed. Well, he bellowed, The man next to him, then! Another time, a guardsman could not understand some complicated drill procedure, and with some speed, the sergeant major drew attention to this lack of understanding. You've got more brains in your backside than in your head, he informed him civilly enough. When you wake up in the morning, instead of putting your head out the window, you want to stick your backside out. Next day, the slovenly man caught his attention again. He approached him. Did you do what I told you yesterday, he demanded. Yes, sir. You put your backside out of the window. Who saw you? The colonel, sir. And what did he say? He said, good morning, Sergeant Major. What happened then is, as another soldier said, not printable. In December 1935, he was posted back to the 1st Battalion Coldstream Guards as Regimental Sergeant Major. A signal honour to be RSM, but to be RSM of a Guards Battalion was a very real privilege, and one that was to give him exposure to a series of royal events. Almost as soon as he arrived, he was sent for by the adjutant. We are to detail the bearer party for the funeral of Princess Victoria in a few days' time, he said. You must select eight warrant officers and senior sergeants and begin rehearsals right away. This was not a popular duty, for the bearers were told the coffin had to be carried up the steps of St George's Chapel on their shoulders, and they had to rehearse by carrying a weighted box. However, at the actual funeral, they did not have to carry the coffin up the steps, but simply carried it from a side room into the chapel. All the members of the royal family were there, in black, the ladies with veils, the men in mourning dress. They followed the bearer party, with Britain behind the coffin, and King George V, head bowed and bearded, behind him. The king had a bad cough and kept on clearing his throat through the service. Afterwards, before the bearer party could be dismissed, Colonel Sir George Crichton, a retired Coldstream officer, told Britain that the king wished to see him. Britain did not know the procedure he should follow, but Sir George advised him, Just go in wearing your bearskin and salute, then wait until the king speaks to you. Britain marched into the room and waited. The king appeared, Britain saluted, and King George shook hands. Sergeant Major, he said slowly, I want to thank you very much, and through you the other warrant officers of the party, who have also reverently carried out this duty for my dear sister. Within a month the king was confined to his room, with the illness that was soon to cause his death. Britain was probably the last soldier to have speech with him. Sixteen years later, in 1951, Britain was again in Windsor as a spectator of the presentation of colours for the 1st and 2nd Battalions Coldstream Guards. King George VI had taken the salute, and afterwards he was walking back to the castle, accompanied by several generals. He suddenly saw, towering above the rest of the crowd, Britain's familiar figure. At once he altered course, and to the surprise of those around, and to the equal amazement of the Sergeant Major, he came right up to him. Well, how was the parade today, Sergeant Major? he asked. Was the drill up to standard? Yes, sir. Very good indeed, replied Britain. Hmm, yes, I thought so too. But of course, you couldn't say anything else today when I'm on parade, now could you? And the king was laughing as he walked away.
the Sant Major had first been introduced to the late King George VI in the early 1930s when he was Duke of York. In the early summer of 1941, Britain was sent from the holding battalion at Regent's Park Barracks to Aldershead Heath, Surrey, to prepare a guard of honour of a Royal Canadian Engineers unit. The King was due to inspect them. The Canadians appeared as anxious to impress Britain as he was to impress them. One thing that struck him was the sloppy shape of their canvas respirator covers. Britain had his own cover packed with thick cardboard so that it was stiff, square and smart. Is it possible to put something similar in the cases of the Guard of Honour? He asked the Major in command. Of course, promised the Major at once. And when they turned up the next day, their respirator covers were all rigid and as smart as his. A very great improvement, sir, Britain told the Major. Improvement be damned, reported the officer. We had no cardboard, so all the lads tore down the blackout boards in the camp just to please you. We can't have a single light on the place tonight because of that. After the parade, the King sent for Britain and shook hands with him. I understand you trained the Guard of Honour, Sant Major. Yes, sir. They were very good, said the King. But then I knew they were all right as soon as I heard that you were training them for me. Like the rest of the Coldstream Guards, Sant Major Britain thoroughly enjoyed the coronation and had played a major part in the training of the Guard of Honour for the day itself. If a coronation is the biggest day in the life of a regular Guardsman, then trooping the colour runs a very close second, and he is almost bound to take part in this parade as it happens every year on the Sovereign's official birthday. Trooping the colour is a ceremony that dates back to the 17th century and one of the oldest drills in the British Army. At one time, a modified form of the present ceremony was carried out every time the colours of a regiment were taken on or off parade. In the 18th century, it became usual for the regimental drummers to beat the tattoo, called the troop, during this parade, and from then on, the word trooping slowly replaced lodging. At the Trooping the Colour in 1937, shortly after the coronation of King George VI, Britain was Sant Major of the Escort to the Colour. It was a hot morning, and, conscious of his position, out in the middle of Horse Guards Parade, with thousands of people watching him intently, Britain was putting more than his usual effort into the job, and his face was bright red with the extent of his exertions. His commanding officer was near Queen Mary, watching the parade. Some days later, when the battalion had moved down to Purbright, he sent for Britain. Sergeant Major, he said, you're getting too fat. Yes, sir? Yes, Queen Mary seems to think so anyway. Britain was amazed. He had only once been on duty near Queen Mary at another ceremonial parade in 1935. He could not believe that she had remembered him from then. Don't look so surprised, said the commanding officer. Her Majesty saw you at Trooping the Colour the other day. She told me afterwards that you had become so big since she last saw you on parade that she could hardly recognise you. How much do you weigh now, Sergeant Major? Twenty-four stone, sir. Well, you must lose some weight. Look, here's the name and address of someone who can help you. The commanding officer held out a paper. You go along and see him. He's a specialist, so I'm told, who specialises in slimming cases. He'll make you lose weight if anyone can. I suggest you change into plain clothes and go along and see him tomorrow. An appointment has been made for you at 11 o'clock. By 11 o'clock the next morning, Britain was standing a little awkwardly outside the frosted glass door of a penthouse flat near Park Lane, which bore the number the commanding officer had written down for him. He pressed the doorbell and somewhere a gong chimed. The door opened at once, and a girl receptionist in a white coat looked at the big man. 
I've got an appointment, Britain explained, a bit haltingly. I understand that Queen Mary... Ah, yes, come in. We have an appointment for you. Perhaps you would just wait a moment. He followed her into the waiting room, which was thickly carpeted and richly furnished, and sat down delicately on the white wood chair, which had probably cost as much as he could ever earn in a month. The minutes ticked by. Then the receptionist came out to tell him the specialist was ready to see him. He was an impressive man. He was an impressive man, with his hair suitably greyed at the edges, so that it made a distinguished contrast with his tanned, lined face. He might have posed for an advertisement about men of distinction. He bent diligently to his routine task of examining the Sant Major. After a while, he straightened up, put his stethoscope on one side, scribbled something on a pad, tore off the sheet and handed it to Britton. Well, there's nothing organically wrong with you, Mr. Britton. It just seems that you're carrying too much weight. But we can do something about that. You go along and see this gentleman. Here's his name and address. He will be able to help you. My receptionist will show you out. Good day. Down a flight of stairs, out into the street again, Britton examined the address. It was a flat in Victoria Street. He went down there on the bus from Hyde Park Corner, walked up Victoria Street until he came to the number he had been given. There were several offices in the building at that address, but none seemed to be occupied by anyone of the name he had been given. Finally, he knocked up the porter and asked him where this man might be whose name he had been given. The porter appeared puzzled. A dietitian, you say? he asked. Yes, said Britton. Oh, I see who you mean. The old slimming fellow. You want him, I take it? I suppose so, said Britton guardedly, for this description hardly fitted his own idea of the specialist. Oh, him. Well, he ain't here. He's been gone for three years. Thus ended a royal attempt to reduce Mr. Britton's waistline. But, as he was an obedient soldier and ordered to slim, he regarded this order as he regarded all others and achieved a loss of two stones that summer by eating less potatoes and bread. Life in the battalion went on apace until September 1939, when the battalion took the train to Southampton and embarked for France. There he stayed with his battalion during the phony war where nothing happened on the Maginot Line. So much so that he actually arranged spring drills to keep the men busy. During this time, one of the lieutenants, who had been a, an RSM before taking a commission, encouraged Britain to do the same. And indeed he did apply to be considered, but then had a change of heart and withdrew the paperwork. His commanding officer, sensing Britain's unease at the prospect of commissioning, called him in one day and said, the regiment is forming a holding battalion in England, he explained, and as you are the senior sergeant major, you will be going back as RSM. Britain was sorry to go, for the first had been his first battalion, and its fortunes were close to his, and he felt an affinity for it he could never feel for any other unit. However, he could not argue against the posting, so he arrived back in England. Britain ended up looking after the holding battalion as RSM in Regent's Park Barracks until he was posted for a short time to 162 HAC Officer Cadet Training Unit in Lanark, again as RSM. There was a rumour he was going to be posted back to Sandhurst. However, he was called for by the commanding officer. You're being posted to a place called Mons Barracks at Aldershot, he said. You probably know it. Yes, I do, sir, replied Britain. I know Mons quite well. Well, now it's partly filled with Canadians, and the powers that be have decided that an officer training school will be set up there as well. Instead of building a wall to keep the two groups apart, they're going to post you there as Sant Major. 
Yes, sir, said the sergeant major, for indeed he could say nothing else. This posting was really to cement his place in the annals of history. In the twelve and a half years Britain was RSM at Mons, he trained upwards of 40,000 young men, who later held commissions of their king or queen. Cadets came from all over the Cadets came from all parts of the empire, from India and Pakistan, Africa, New Zealand, Australia and Canada. There were also Norwegians and Dutchmen and Frenchmen, cadets from Burma and Israel and Egypt, a prince from Luxembourg, lords from England, lairds from Scotland, knights from Ireland. His method of addressing newcomers on their initial parade rarely varied, and most of the 40,000 cadets still remember it. First, he would give a short talk on the need for discipline, enthusiasm, hard work, and all of the other several virtues of the army, by which he set so much store himself. He would then say, You will call me sir, and I will call you sir. The difference being, you will mean it. For the most part, they did. Indeed, only one resented Britain's tremendous voice and his love of discipline. And as the weeks went by, this cadet made up his mind that he would get Britain as soon as he was commissioned. Now there's a rule of the officer cadet training unit that although cadets were allowed to sew their new stars on their shoulder straps of their uniforms on the day before they were due to pass out, they did not really become gazetted officers until the next day. The cadet in question did not know this, and accordingly, as soon as he had attended his passing out parade, he put on his new service dress and his raw Sam Brown belt and went off in search of the RSM. He did not have to look for long, and then he was surprised to see Mr Britton stroll past him without giving him a second glance. He cleared his throat. I say there, Mr Britton, he said in his new officer's accent. Don't you usually salute officers? Britain gave the man a glare that had made thousands of guardsmen quake in their size 16 boots. Then he took a deep breath. You're not an officer until 12 o'clock tonight, he bellowed. Now move your feet in double time or I'll have you in the guardroom directly, sir. The cadet did not wait any longer. He did not completely recover from the shock until he was safely on the afternoon train out of order shop for London. It was during this time that he became famous for his standard exclamation, usually delivered in a rising cadence. Why, I've never seen anything like it in all my life! It actually got him into the world of cinema, in films such as They Were Not Divided, and a cameo role in Carrington, V.C. If he caught a new cadet trying to sneak a glimpse of him on parade, he would allude to his film work by shouting, Look me up front, sir! If you want to see me, you'll have to go to the cinema. It'll cost you half a crown. But time and tide wait for no man, and it was catching up with RSM Britain too. Most notably, in the eyesight department. He tells of his most embarrassing moment. He was drilling some cadets at an early morning parade when something caught his eye halfway down the front rank. That cadet, number 17 in the front rank, wearing brown gloves. Take your gloves off, sir. Nobody moved. The little hairs rose at the back of Britain's neck. That cadet! That cadet wearing brown gloves! Take your gloves off, sir! Still not a movement. Britain whipped his paystick under his arm and marched towards the cadet with tremendous steps. As he drew near, he saw the enormity of his mistake. The cadet in question was an Indian. And so it came to his final parade the passing out parade of his beloved young gentleman cadets. 
He spent an unusually long time getting his kit ready for the final outing. Everything had to be just so. The parade came and went, and he politely chatted with the families of the young officers who had just commissioned. Then he found himself quite alone, walking back to his bunk to get changed for the last time, when he heard running feet behind him. It was a cadet. Britain waited for him. The young fellow was out of breath, a slight, fresh-faced boy of nineteen or twenty. I just wanted to say goodbye, sir, and I wanted to thank you for all you've done for our platoon. That's all right, replied the sergeant major, gratified. I'm sure you'll all do very well, every one of you. They shook hands. Altogether, he had trained more than 40,000 cadets from all parts of the empire, but he treated each new draft as if they were his first, and they appreciated it. There's one thing, though, sir, the cadet continued earnestly. We were talking in the room last night, and we all agreed that it was a great pity you and Mrs. Britton had no family to carry on this tradition in the army, sir. No one to soldier on after you. He paused for a moment, awkwardly wondering if he had said too much. And the RSM looked beyond him to the emptying square, to the flags flying and the sun glinting on the ceremonial cannons by the side of the dais. This was his world, here, within the confines of the square. He had lived his life, and it had been a very good life. You thought that, did you? he asked softly, almost speaking to himself. Well, you were wrong, you know, quite wrong. For I have had a family, a very big family, a family of thousands, and all of them were soldiers. So there we have it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about Regiment of Sergeant Major Tibby Britton and his exploits in the British Army. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support the work that we're doing during the pandemic lockdown, then do go to our website at www.theguardsmuseum.com and hit the Support Us button and perhaps leave a small donation. I've been Andrew Wallace. This has been episode 13 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. So until next week, goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up, down and get away. <laughs>